When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. Hello, sunshine on a winter's day. Yeah, I had to drive through the snow to get here, but hey, the roads are clear, or they're just wet, so not slick, but we need the moisture. Absolutely. Everything we can get. So, Do you have a lot of thank yous? You know, I want to say thank you to Merrill. He has been supporting this show and uh, for quite a while, and I appreciate that, Merrill. And uh, I forgot to check this morning to see if I had any new uh, emails, so I'll check and thank them next week. What's the furthest away that you've had an email from uh, so far? From Germany. Germany? Yeah. yeah. Jawohl. Yeah. And, and down in the Caribbean, Costa Rica. Wow. Uh, let me think. Um, for some reason, I was thinking I had one from Australia, too. But really? I, and if I, I think I did, yeah. The kangaroo ate it. Yes. Okay, it put it in the pouch and bounced away. <laughs> Here we go. What are, you know, I'm trying to think, what did we talk about last week? Uh, Doc uh, Crumbine. Yeah, the guy at Dodge City. Yes. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, I've got a story that comes from an Old West magazine back in 1985, and this is a uh, interview, uh, a lady by, by the name of Frida Snell, and it's her life on an Indian reservation. And though, so she was interviewed, uh, so she must have been about 85 years old when this interview took place. But this is her story of life on a, on a couple of reservations. Well, now, was she captured? Or? No. No, she was, uh, this was about 1900. Okay. So you'll see, she was, uh, she lived on the reservation with her family. I see. So her dad was the Indian agent. I see. So, but, uh, so I'm going to kind of read this because this is her story, her interview. Okay. Uh, back, like I say, clear back in 1985. So. No, not 1985. Well, no, the interview was in 1985. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So, so this took place about 1900. I see. That's what I'm thinking. I see. So she says, some of the happy years, happiest years of my life were those spent on the Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation at Ashland, Montana, in Rosebud County, in the southeastern part of the state. Do you know where that is, I Ashland? Do. I do, I do, I do. Yes, okay. I do. She says, we lived right on the edge of the picturesque Tongue River. My father, George William Colwell, was farm agent for the government, working out the uh, of the Indian Agency at Lame Deer, Montana. Mm-hmm. Lame Deer? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, he served in this capacity. By the way, you know from your own research, there's a lot of towns, if you will, with the deer usage in Montana names. Yeah. Deer Lodge. Deer Lodge. Yeah, 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 all those, yeah. yeah. 
Well, he served in that capacity for about a half a dozen years, after which he was transferred to the Sioux Indian Reservation at Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Ah. Pine Ridge. Okay. Yeah. So our family was associated with Indians most of our lives. When I was about five years old, we lived on a dry land potato farm out of Hay Spring, Nebraska. The Sioux camped on our farm during the potato harvest. My father, who had hired them, had to pay them nightly in silver. They had no trust in paper money. My brothers and sisters and I grew up having Indian children as companions. We never missed going to Indian celebrations if they were in the vicinity in which we lived. They were part of our lives. We all learned Indian Sign Language. Uh, when I married and continued to use my hands when speaking, my cowboy husband, Jay, would say I had lived too long among the Indians. He was proud that I came off the reservation, and he, too, revered the Indians. Let me ask very you, highly. I know you're probably going to cover this, and I'm, I'm not trying to interrupt, but... When you do stories like this, I think it's really kind of imperative to have information about how the Indians lived, what they wore for clothing, and yeah. and what they did for schooling and that type of thing. I'd just like to know more about their side of the story. Well, and this is taken from somebody who lived with them, ah. and so I'll cover some of that. Good. Uh, so she says, uh, through the years, there have been those who maintained that many Indians did not take kindly to farming, but this was not true of the Cheyenne. At Ashland, they were very adept at it, learning quickly from my father and never forgetting what he taught them. He was patient, spoke some Cheyenne, understood sign language, and set an excellent example in truck farming. You know, we've heard all the bad things about the reservations, and there were some bad things probably in years previous, but uh, this was pretty good. So community gardening was one of my father's pet projects, and the Cheyenne took to it heartily, especially after seeing the results. About 10 acres of the garden were located along the Tongue River, so irrigation was no problem. Green beans, cabbages, onions, potatoes, carrots, beets, tomatoes, and corn were grown with excellent success. The length of the growing season was adequate, and the harvest especially gratifying. During the growing season and between weeding and irrigating, Father and the Indians built a huge root cellar. It was divided into sections, with each family having a section for storing. Approximately 40 families were represented. Uh, Very well organized, don't you think? I would say. Yeah. See, uh, she goes on, everything was harvested by hand. Some Indians also raised hay and grain on their own property, but the acres for the community garden were government-owned with all the produce going to the Indians. Now, with the work that they generated with the farmers in that area, the white farmers, uh-huh. was it kind of a mutual working together? Was it they were paid uh, to do yeah, the Yeah, they could go out and work and get paid money or goods or whatever. So, yeah, they could go off and work for for farmers and ranchers. I see. So uh, men, women, and children worked together. When the children were old enough, they went to boarding school at St. Labra Indian Mission at Ashland, Montana. But they worked gardening during the months school was out. Fun times were part of the Cheyenne's working day, for they often joked, laughed, and sang at their chores. Really? Uh, so it was a happy situation. It was a good situation. She goes on. The women wore, and this is what you asked about, the women wore ankle-length calico dresses, wide shawls on their shoulders, moccasins on their feet. Some wore sashes at their waist and scarves on their heads with hair braided or loose. The men wore Levi's and cotton or wool shirts. Many of the elderly wore long braids. 
the women did beautiful beadwork, uh, but at this time, uh, there was not much of a market, uh, kind of limited for their handicraft. You said the elderly men wore their hair in long wow. braids. Did the younger men cut their hair? Because I always thought that in the tribal tradition, they didn't want to cut their hair. You know, it's a good question, and, and I'm looking at some pictures here, and I'll show you uh, some of those. Here, here's a picture uh, of one of those, but I'll show you these. some of these other pictures. They show that they didn't have long hair, Okay. but, but some of the older ones did. Uh, and I can tell you, uh, I have an aunt and uncle that live out at Raft River out in Malta, and years and years ago, there was uh, a group of Indians that would come through every spring and fall, and they would get deer hides, and they would come back the next season and they had made uh, leather moccasins leather gloves leather jackets in trade for hides that my aunt uh, and uncle would get these leather I goods see. that they had made i see so anyway she goes on when the cabbages uh, were ready to harvest much of the crop was grated and made into sauerkraut which was stored in wooden barrels to season in the root cellar big copper boilers that contained 30 quarts were made available for processing beans, tomatoes, beets, and other vegetables. Now, this kind of surprised me a little bit. Kerr mason jars were used to hold these preserved foods. Way back then? Yeah, Kerr mason jars in the early 1900s. I had no idea. I did not either. She says the boilers were heated outside in open cement fire gratings heated by wood. My mother instructed the women in preparing the vegetables and jars. The Indian women took great pride in the canned results, which lined shelves upon shelves in the root cellar. Winter was not only as what well, was not nearly as dreaded when Indian families had these staples to help them exist. Uh, so her mother was a great asset to these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says, Mother also showed the women how to dry corn, cutting the kernels off the ears with knives, and then spreading the corn on screen boxes so the air could come up underneath the kernels. And it didn't turn into rock hard? Well, no. Well, it probably did, but then they could grind it, you know, oh. into like cornmeal. So the corn would dry, she says, in the sun for days. Every so often, the women would stir the corn so that moisture would not collect on it. No one wanted rain during the drying days, but if rain came, the corn was taken inside. Really? So I'm assuming that it was hard, dry corn that they uh, ground into a meal. Uh, She says, wonderfully capable Indian women worked for us off and on in our home. All were fine housekeepers and neat as a pin, and when my mother was ill, she counted such women her blessing. She, uh, such women were paid for their housework, and the men who worked out on outlying farms also earned wages, but none of the community produce was ever sold. So that answers that question about going out and no, working. Did they speak English? Uh, it, it doesn't say so in this article, but I'm assuming they had to have learned some English. I see. So... But, uh, again, the, the community produce was strictly for the Indians uh, for their homes. And she goes on, money was never taken too seriously by the Cheyennes. If one had money, they all did, and it was something to be spent before it burned a hole in the pocket. Wait a minute. It, it, if one had money, it was they just all shared. did. They shared the money? Yeah. It was just... For the labor? Yeah. It was wow. just a community thing. It was huh. uh, an order of... Sharing, I guess, you know, but she goes on. The Cheyenne were a generous, kindly people endowed with a great sense of humor and a wonderful sense of family. They were most considerate of their young and aged. 
all shared in fun and sorrow, and they stayed united in spirit. They took all celebrations very seriously, and we were permitted uh, to many of their activities. So she had quite an amazing upbringing. And 30 years prior to that, they were known as the most one of the most dangerous exactly. tribes on the face of the earth. Yeah, they were. So she goes on, Father had many duties working as a government farm agent. Besides schooling the Indians in truck farming, he also helped as a law officer and a truant officer. He had several Indian policemen, including two brothers, Ben Big Head Man and John Tall White Man. you got to love those names. <laughs> you got to love them. Father never packed a gun. But he did pack a medicine bag, for he often had to dispense medicine to the Indians with the help of a government nurse. Sometimes a nurse came from lame deer to help with the sick. Dad gave out health rations as well as food and clothing. He was jack-of-all-trades, ready to offer help if consulted or needed. He was our hero, just as my mother was our heroine. Hmm. So, can you imagine growing up like that, Zeb? What, a, what an experience. It sounds like kind of a fantasy land. It does. Yeah. And it sounds like everybody got along. Yeah, they did. Uh, she goes on, during Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration, some of the livestock uh, uh, of cattlemen were purchased for the Indians of the Cheyenne Reservation, and fine care was given these cattle. Excellent corrals were erected by the Indians, and any butchering was done right on the reservation. Drying racks hung with the strips of beef uh, were in evidence in good weather so that the meat could be turned into sun-dried jerky. So they continued a lot of the traditions that they'd had for hundreds of years. You know, drying meat and... What about about rules and regulations and adhering to the law. Did they adhere to the U.S. law, or did they adhere to tribal law? I'm going to guess, uh, I'm just going to say probably both, I see. because they they had to adhere to the laws of, of the land, right. but th- I'm sure they had Indian uh, rules and regulations that they lived by. Wouldn't you think? I mean, that's just a guess. Yeah, I, there's so much I've got to ask questions about because yeah. it sounds like they really got along with the whites, and conversely, the whites got along with them. Exactly. But there they had would, to be some conflict. Yeah, because they bought beef from the local ranchers yeah. uh, and took care of them. So she goes on. Push na- that mic just this way, just a little bit. Away, oh, yeah, just you're getting a little fuzzy. There okay. you go. Good. So neighboring the Cheyenne Indian Reservation was that of the Crow Indian Reservation. Crow Agency was the headquarters of these Indians, and Hardin and Lodgegrass are two towns which accommodated many of their needs. Intermarriage was acceptable to both tribes. And that kind of surprised me just a little bit, between the Crow and the Cheyenne. Uh, She goes on, Robert Yellowtail, a Crow, was one of our favorite Indians. He held on the Crow Reservation the same position my father had with the Cheyennes. Now that surprised me a little bit too, that they had an Indian... Uh, Indian agent for the for the reservation. The two men were very friendly. Mr. Yellowtail finally became the Crow superintendent. Yellowtail Dam was named in his honor. So there's a dam over there somewhere Mm. named in his honor. Okay. So she goes on toward the latter days of our stay at Ashland. It was discovered that my mother uh, had cancer, and she lingered on for a number of months. But she finally died on the reservation. there was uh, some Indian ladies that took care of her. Took they were just nursed her and did the best they could for her. But uh, 
Anyways, it says some very old Indians lived on the Cheyenne Reservation, and once an interpreter called Thaddeus Redwater, a famous football player, came, and I went with him as he interviewed those who had fought in the Custer battle. Oh, She said, I took notes of this interview, and she said two of the great chiefs interviewed at the time were Chief Two Moons and Chief Wooden Leg. They insisted that Custer was killed in the battle and did not take his own life. So here we have really a first-hand account. Are these accounts, <laughs> excuse me, are these accounts available for the general public to read? I don't know that. Uh, she took notes on this interview, and the, the person that did the interviewing, I don't know if that's out there somewhere. So this was like in 19 what? Uh, the, the, well, early 1900s, because she was still a little girl living on the uh, reservation. Okay. So these chiefs would have still been alive that yeah. had fought. Yeah. Uh, uh, with that Custer. happened in 1876, so, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So she goes on, she says, my father monthly handed out rations to the Indians according to how many there were in the family. They never had to make any sign or signature. Rations consisted mainly of food and clothing. Clothing. She says, I have a scrapbook full of pictures of our days in the Cheyenne Indian Reservation. And she says, what marvelous cowboys were the Cheyenne. They were natural-born horsemen from childhood. Horses were their love of their life. The remarkable thing is the way they learned to adjust to the rules of the white man. They accepted and respected reservation boundaries. They kept fences mended. They did not steal graze for their livestock. They knew that we liked and trusted them. Their dignity was a beautiful thing to behold, so too their capabilities. Isn't that... I'm really intrigued by this because uh, 30 years prior, round figures, here they were trying to... They were a part of Custer's Last Stand and the battlefield and everything, and now they're commingling as partnerships on this reservation. Was it a reservation that still stands today? Um... I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. A lot of those do still. Yeah. They're still out there, but I, I'm not sure. But she goes on. She says, too much has been written on the dark side of Indian and white relationships. It is time to show the good side of the coin. It is time to tell my father and my mother's story and the part we children played in it. We knew love, respect, harmony, and friendship at our Cheyenne's reservation. My memories are beautiful ones. My father and mother worked with dedication and devotion to help make the Cheyenne living in their reservation surroundings developed to the fullest of their capability uh, and capacity. Forever I will treasure those days of my girlhood on the northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation of Montana. Now, I have a question right there. Okay, let me show you some pictures. Oh, this lady, uh, when did she pass away? Uh, I don't know. The interview took place in 1985. Well, my... My point is, I wonder if she has family members that we could perhaps call and have on the air. You know, well, it says she had brothers and sisters, but, of course, they'd probably be pretty old, too. But she Did had she marry? kids and grandkids. That's what I'm saying, and they would have a lot of the documentation of yeah, what she's talking about. I could look up her name and see if I I would could... love to find out about that. But look at some of those pictures. They, wow. They were ranching. They were farming, gardening. They were plowing, uh, using horses. It really looks like a very congenial atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. Here they've got them uh, branding uh, on the Indian reservation. Wow. So Interesting. Again, you know, we, we hear the early reservations of Indian agents that starved them and, uh, you know, uh, 
didn't give them the rations and their food and their clothing. And in some cases, they tried to force them into farming, uh, and it just didn't work. No. You know, some of the early ones. They, uh, Why don't we do that? Why don't we try to find out if there's family members that yeah. we might be able to contact and have on the program? Yeah, I can. I would uh, love to do Because I've got her father's name yeah. uh, and her mother's name and then her married name. So and Time to play detective. I'll see what I can do. That would be interesting. It, it would really be. Because evidently she's, uh, like say she has siblings that did were there at the same time. Yeah. And their memories of that would be Absolutely. great to see. Especially going back to the battlefield in Custer's Last Stand. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, Interesting. Excellent program. You, you did sir. it again. You hit the ball out of the park. <laughs> Once again. There you go. Hitting over a 1,000. There you go. Well, I, I've got to tell you, Zeb, speaking of hitting, I've started playing pickleball. Uh-huh. Do you even know what that is? I do. Do you? Yes, okay. I do. It, I've been doing it for about a month, and I've, I can almost beat some people now. Really? I, I won a game yesterday. A game? <laughs> yeah, just one. After 373 <laughs> attempts. Uh, but it's fun. I'm enjoying it. It is. It is. And it's good for you, old, old bones. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.